All right, Charles, it's that point in our podcast where we invite on a guest to talk about the episode. But uh, as we mentioned earlier, today we have director Michael Lang, the director of this episode and a previous guest on the podcast. Uh, we talked with Michael in our season five retrospective episode. And if you're listening to this now and you haven't heard that, definitely go back and listen because we talk all about Michael's work in Northern Exposure he directed five episodes of Northern Exposure. So season four, Cottage for Uncle Manny, which is a huge fan favorite. Then in season five, A Cup of Joe, A Bolt from the Blue, and Grand Prix. And of course, now in season six, The Mommy's Curse. So in that season five retrospective episode, we talked all about those other episodes. And, you know, we didn't really touch on The Mommy's Curse because we hadn't gotten that far. But we talk all about uh, Michael's career just like the changing, uh, <laughs> the changing film and television landscape over the years. Uh, but today we've got him on for the Mommy's Curse. So glad to have you back, Michael. How are you doing? Great. I'm great, and it's great to be back. I tell you, it's so cool that you do this podcast because it was such a good show. Yeah. I you know I I rewatched <laughs> the Mommy's Curse just in, you know in preparation for this podcast and. God, the show was so damn good. Yeah. And I'm not sure that the Mommy's Curse would be considered one of the best episodes anyway, but even that episode was still amazing. It's just, uh, I think it was way ahead of its time, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, the type of storytelling that it did was pretty unique for that time period. But now, you know, a lot of shows tell stories in that way and have character, you know, character reveals in that way and everything. It was great. It was really a great show. Yeah. Right. I, I always had fun working on it. Yeah. This episode in particular, I, I found it was like very funny. Like, uh, you know, just all of the plot lines had me smiling, had me laughing. And I mean, as you said, Northern Exposure, it's a great show. I think a lot of the, a lot of the whole series is very funny, but this episode in particular, um, I don't know if that's just, uh, if we can credit any of that to your presence on set, but you seem yeah, like you have a good it. time. What are you, are you kidding? <laughs> all of it. Well, Punching it's, up the uh, it's one of those things where if it's a good story and good craftsmanship, then it's timeless. It's gonna, it, it will live on forever and it's going to be great. And, you know, on the craftsmanship part of it, I, I want to thank you, Mr. Lang. I was telling Lee about this earlier and I was saying like, I know that we have Mr. You know, Michael Lang's coming on the podcast. He's going to talk about, you know, what he's been doing for Northern Exposure. I'm not saying this just to butter him up, but this is genuinely a really well-directed episode. There were so many shots that I was watching and I was saying like, there is a logic behind this shot because you need to introduce this character. So the camera has to move in this particular movement and, in order to set it up so that this character can naturally come into the frame. Uh, there's a lots of moments throughout there and all three plot lines, which I was praising, uh, you're directing Mr. Lang. So kudos to you on that. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Like, like I said, it was a, it was a really fun show to direct. I have a funny story, not about this one, but when you talk about directing mm -hmm. for, you know, to, for, for the characters, my very first one that I did, which I think was Cottage for Uncle Manny, mm -hmm. there was a scene at the bar and it was, I think my first scene at the bar and it was with. Joel and the rich guy, I can't remember his name Maurice. suddenly. Maurice. Maurice. And they were sitting at the bar and it was sort of a philosophical conversation, but it was kind of bumping Joel a little bit. So I decided to shoot what are called reverse overs, which are when you're over the person's back mm -hmm. and it works particularly well at a bar. Mm -hmm. 
so I shot, you know, I shot the scene with reverse overs. And so, so the master shot, you shoot behind the characters. So you don't really see their faces. And I thought just because the, the way that scene was, it was good to not see their faces at first mm -hmm. because they were both kind of keeping things uncomfortable with each other. So I finished shooting and then uh, Rob <laughs> says to me, so when are you going to shoot proper overs? <laughs> so I said, what do you mean? He said, well, those are not really proper overs. I said, yeah, they are. They're used all the time. It's a, you know, it's a storytelling, visual storytelling technique when you have a scene like this, where you don't want, where the characters are sort of hiding something from each other. So you want to do that visually as well. And it's, you know, sort of imparts to the audience that feeling of something's not 100% out there. And yeah. he said, all right, whatever, you won't be back, or something like that. Oh, you know. <laughs> that's hilarious. No, was that was that a common thing that Rob did? He would just go up to the directors and, you know, question them on their he was a, directorial yeah. abilities? He was a tester. He was definitely a tester. <laughs> in, in fact, the funny thing is, about three years ago, I don't know if I told this on the last podcast we did, but about three or four years ago, uh, there was a, a, they had an event at the Directors Guild for mm. episodic directors. So I went and, and I was seated at a table and Rob was there. So we reconnected, which was kind of fun. And he said, you know, I owe you an apology <laughs> because now that I've been directing, I realize what an a-hole I was to many of the directors, but mm -hmm. especially you, because you always pushed back. The other ones would just sort of, either brush it off or, you know, say, I'm sorry, but you never did. You just pushed back. And so I particularly was jerky to you and I want to apologize because <laughs> I realized how horrible it is when actors do that. So I said, okay, apology not accepted. <laughs> no, I, I think I remember you telling us, um, a story as well with Rob and uh, you guys were setting up the shot and you right. had to move his mark uh, just, exactly. to, just to get the lighting correct. And when he, yep. when he came back, I guess after you guys were marking it or uh, lighting it, he was like, did you move my mark? <laughs> he was like, I don't know if I can, yep. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Like, let me, let me think about it. And <laughs> yep. Yep. So he, he apologized for all that one big blanket apology to all directors. So. It's, it's, it's funny though. Uh, but, yeah. but no, yeah. Talking about reverse overs and, and what Charles was talking about in this episode, there's a lot of really great in this episode, great uses of camera movement that, you know, are really stylized, but as Charles is also saying, definitely have a lot of intention behind like, you know, your reasoning for shooting those reverse overs. Um, there's always, it feels like from hearing you talk to, and uh, the last time we spoke, there's always like a lot of intention that goes into why you might want to try some perhaps unconventional uh, camera moves or camera setups, but they seem to work and you seem to have the idea behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all really storytelling. I mean, it's a big part of it. I think, you know, it's like, it's not radio with pictures, so... <laughs> you know, it's, I think, this, you know, the shots are part of the storytelling process. Although I must say on Northern Exposure, the producers were reluctant to do anything too out of the box in mm -hmm. terms of shooting style. Or I once did something, I think it was also in Kaddish, 
where I did this reflection shot, mm-hmm. which it, part of it stayed in, but there was some part that was a little bit more woo, woo you know, woo, uh, <laughs> that they hated. So yeah, I think we, we remember talking about that. There's like yeah, it's like a sort of like a 360 shot, and they may have like you they may have cut out of it at a certain point. Yeah, you know, exactly. They, they they did use some of it, which was pretty cool. Yeah. They, it was too artsy for them. So, <laughs> you know, there was a sort of a fine line between artsy and what they liked. So I, I always tried to go right up to that line, maybe push just a little bit. Well, you did a lot of artsy stuff in this episode, I think. Yeah, this was yeah. <laughs> I like it. I wanted to actually ask this question for you, Mr. Lyon, because you've directed for both film and television. There was a, a quote that I stumbled upon just the other day where it said that film was a director's medium, but television was a writer's. It was more driven by the writer, whereas right. you know, film it was directors. Uh, would you agree with that quotation, mm-hmm. uh, with that characterization? And can you also elaborate on that? Like why particularly film is more guided toward the director? Um, I'm assuming what you just spoke of, you know, speaks also volume to that as well. Yeah. Actually, the, the, usually the in a, in a TV show, the directors, in you know, they're often they'll these days, especially there'll be a producing director who will, be part of the producing team as well Mm. and they will be able to you know they'll direct some episodes during this show but primarily the directors are all freelance so they're not really involved with the show on an ongoing basis i mean you may direct a few in a season but you're you know you're not there all the time so by that nature alone it's you know the the continuity of the show is really in the hands of the writers and the showrunner the producing you know writing producers producing right one of those things <laughs> um so they're really and, and also in terms of finishing you you know once the director finishes shooting then they go to either another show or whatever but and you know you'll always do a cut you, you do the director's cut but then once it's after after that the producer can do whatever the heck they want um, so even in the finishing process, and then also directors are contractually entitled to go to any of the post-production uh, processes like, you know, the mix or color timing or whatever. But the, in practice, I don't, I never did. And I don't think any directors that, you know, when, mm-hmm. when I was the few shows that I produced as well, the director never came in for any of that stuff anyway, because, you know, they're usually on the next on a, you know mm-hmm. another episode um in film usually the director or often the director is involved from the start like they might find the project and then find a producer so by nature again by nature of the process their involvement creatively is much on a much different level and so therefore once you get to the set or even before the set you're the king you're the king of the creative process Mm-hmm. Now, even there, though, very few directors have final cut in their contract, so the producer can really do whatever they want with it once once the cut is delivered. Um, but certainly on set, the director is king, mm-hmm. which is nice. You know that I mean, it's nice 
if if you like if you like to be king, who doesn't like to be king? <laughs> that is a very interesting answer. So it's basically baked into the process, and is what yeah. like you'll never unless we like you fundamentally change how film is done. It's just always going to be that way. That's Correct. the director's going to have more control of it. Yeah, I mean, even on the two films that I did, both of them, I was a hired hand. I mean, I was brought on after the project had already been, you know, the script was already written. Uh, the both both movies were already financed, but even there, I did significant changes in both of those scripts. Which in the TV world, I probably would not have either would not have been able to do, or I would have been rebuffed if I tried to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Like, had you ever? Did you ever? I guess it sounds like you didn't really get to do a lot of that in TV. But like, did, would you ever try rewriting stuff on set, or is that? Not really something you could do. Um, not re- generally the the, re- the rewriting part. I mean, I wouldn't ever literally rewrite, but mm-hmm. I would often have notes okay. um, yeah, yeah. on scenes that I thought didn't work that well. Actually, my favorite one was it was the, I did an episode of Ally McBeal where David E. Kelly had written the script, and he's I mean literally an awesome you know he's like God. <laughs> in the world maybe not anymore but certainly back then it was like david e kelly oh my god and he was an amazing writer but i had one little problem with the scene and so i told the producer you know what do i do i'd like to discuss this problem i have with the scene and he said wait you have a problem with a david e kelly scene <laughs> i said well yeah and he said well i mean the really the only thing if you were up for it the only way to discuss is to have a meeting with david himself and then you know he may fire you on the spot i mean i don't know are you willing to take that risk and i said yeah i mean to me that's what a director because my responsibility is to make sure the scene is working the best it can so i felt there was a pretty big bump in this little scene so i so i go up to meet with him he's sitting across the table from me and he wrote with longhand with pencil um, which I think he still does. And I said, so he said, so you have a problem with the scene? And I said, yes. I mean, yeah, I think it would work better. And I explained to him what the problem was. So he goes, hmm. And then he starts writing on his yellow legal pad, <laughs> you know, whatever. And I'm sitting there quietly while he's writing. And then he turns the pad and slides it across the table. And he says, does this work better for you? And I look at it and I said, yeah, it does. It really helps. Thanks. And he said, okay. <laughs> and then he evidently called the producer and said, let's get this guy back. Nice. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he liked, you know, well, of course, if he hadn't liked my note, then he, that probably would not have been <laughs> <Yeah>. the call. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I was going to ask, this was something I was really interested about since we're talking about people returning and, or maybe not returning is that you were stepping in for the second to last episode for Rob Morrow before he leaves Northern Exposure. Right. And me and Lee were really curious about this. Did you know that this was like, he was like about to leave, like literally next episode? You did. Yeah. Yeah, he, I think he was only in one scene in that episode, right? He's in a really short scene, and it's yeah. like it's almost as if um, he's coming in to meet with Maggie, and then Maggie shoes him out real fast. Right. But, but what was it like? I guess did it feel? What was the energy on set like, or what was it like working with Rob? Was he kind of like over it, or it was a pretty um, 
it was not a amicable part departure. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, yeah. you know, I think everyone on the producer side and the writers were kind of over him at that point. Now, of course, many people, including me, predicted that there was no Northern exposure without Rob Morrow. Mm-hmm. And that proved to be true because the show tanked shortly after. And because, you know, to me, it's like dealing with humans is part of, you know, especially actor humans, which they're mostly human. Um, you know, it's part of our job. It's, it's it's baked into the system to use a phrase. So it's like, yeah, they're they're going to be quirky people. That's why they decided to be actors. Who would decide <laughs> to be an actor unless you're quirky? So I just felt just deal with it, you know, which, of course, it's easy for me to say because I come in for a few weeks and then I leave and they have to deal with him mm-hmm. on a you know regular basis. But still, I thought it was a mistake to have him leave the show. Mm-hmm. But no, he was. I think he was professional with me. By that point, he had tested me however many times, and I yeah. <laughs> passed all the time. So, I mean, he was fine. But like I said, a lot of people were happy to see him go. And I thought, well, you're not going to be that happy when you don't have a show to work on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so, you know, Joel leaving shortly after this episode – um, this is, I think your, I mean, I would assume your first time working with Paul Provenza who plays Phil Capra. He's sort of a new right. character in the series. And then, yep. and then also I think, uh, you probably, I think you probably had worked with him before, but, um, was curious to know about what it was like working with Paul Provenza, but also, um, Moultrie Patton who plays Walt, the character of Walt. Oh my God. He's he got his own so, storyline in this. I had forgotten about him, but oh my God, he was amazing. He seems like <laughs> such a character. Such a character. It's such a great guy. I loved all that. That whole storyline is just, it's gold. It's, yeah. it's hilarious. <laughs> it's hard, heartfelt. It deals with such issues, you know, so many big human issues you know, both uh, overtly and covertly. And I mean, it's, he was, and he, I mean, what a team they were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, it, it, it was, it was funny because when she finally, Ruth finally comes to have to tell him, it was such an adult way of saying it. And I'm thinking, God, don't we all wish we could all, it's so awkward. I mean, how awkward could it be to say to someone who you're having relations with, mm-hmm this isn't working out on the business side. You know, how awkward would that be? How many of us would be able to ever have that conversation? None. I mean, not none literally, but so what another thing for the show is like to show people, this is how you deal with things like this as an adult. You know, this is what you should shoot for. It's very mature. Yeah. And I guess it makes a lot of sense for their characters. You know, they're, they're wise, they're aged, they know they've been alive, but I I think we talked about this before too, Charles. There's a lot of, um, there can be not always because sometimes it's a little comedic and goofy, but there a lot of times, uh, there's a lot of mature relationship, especially when, when Joel and Maggie, start to actually be like, okay, we're going to be in a relationship now. There's a lot of mature um, representations of love and, you know, having a relationship. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I I think there was two specific instances that I was very impressed by that uh, writing-wise, which is the first one is at the dinner right after their first argument. And Ruth Ann says, Walt, can we not, can we not be passive aggressive? Can we talk about this like adults? Like we, we already do all these things. Let's just try to separate the two instances of working and uh, being with each other. And in the second instance, which I was very impressed by, is the one where they come together on the bench. 
and yeah. they're talking to each other. And that one's got, in my opinion, like every episode always has like that pivotal shot in which you think about and you're like that encapsulates the entire episode. Like that is the the number one shot. And for me, it's the one where it's shooting from behind them on the bench. And it's like it, it, that's how we close it out right there. And I think that's such a beautiful scene. How, did you know that like that was how you wanted to end the scene, Mr. Lang? Oh, like, yeah. That was going to be it. Like we're going to shoot from behind. We're going to let him be in silence. Let yep. it stay for like three to four seconds. Oh, that's great. Yep. No, because again, it's like it's part of the storytelling. It's like you you want to feel you don't really need to see their faces because you know what they are going through. So it's like seeing them and then the back, you know, whatever behind them. So it's like this is it, you know. Yeah, it, it's it gives you a chance to ruminate over what what you've just seen and experienced. Right, it's such a beautiful white shot because it's like it makes them seem so small right. at that instance, but it also makes it a little bit more like we're observing them and like we're not actually part of the moment. This exactly. is their moment, and that's why we need to be so far away from them to let them right. have their own thing. And I thought I was like, oh, this is such a great shot right here, and I was surprised that I didn't end the episode. Because it still goes on for five more minutes after that. There's right. still more scenes. <laughs> That's right. Strong image, yeah. I This is what, I don't know why I thought it was so hilarious, but I kept laughing at Holling and Phil Capra's sort of like budding bromance and they're, they're bonding <laughs> over poetry and just they, they can recite the uh, Robert Service <laughs> yeah, poems word for word. Yep. That was so good. Yeah, that was fun too. And, and you know, I had forgotten all, all of that. You know, I had... It's so it was so long ago, and then just sort of re revisiting it, it was so much fun. And that boat, you know, the boat was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that whole yeah, that whole storyline also. And again, it's like human interaction. It's like Holly, Holling, and Phil are going through, and then uh, Maurice gets jealous of it. Mm-hmm. And it's like you know, we all go through that stuff, and then how it's resolved. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. I thought that it was like, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm in such a, a binge on your directing on this episode. I'm sorry if I'm like, I'm really, you know, trying to analyze really into it. But uh, one thing that I was really impressed by was also the lighting in this episode. And I think there was three different instances in which you applied the same type of lighting. Uh, it's a very harsh white lighting that just comes into the screen. You can't miss it. The first is whenever uh, Leland passes away on the pool table. <laughs> This very bright right. white light is shining on him. The second is when uh, Holling and Phil are eating their sandwiches, and then suddenly the rest of the town come in to bring in Leland's dead body. And when they open the barn door, the harsh light just floods into the room, and it right. comes onto Holling and Phil's face, and they're like, oh, this is like how reality is. And then mm-hmm. the final one is when Holling and Phil are walking down the street outside. It's one of the few scenes in Northern Exposure in which we're being shot outside, but it's also mostly up just on their faces. We're not, it's not, the camera isn't really that far away from them. And there's some lighting that just happens throughout their face. And it's purposeful because it's very reflective on the lens and it just revolves around them. And you see it, a little bit of a lens flare going across. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, that never really happens in Northern Exposure. Like I'm, I'm wondering why there, there's an emphasis on this lighting on this episode and maybe it's coincidental maybe you were thinking on that day like hey, i just think it looks nice <laughs> but i was wondering mr lang was there a reasoning behind it no i think i think the the i think it, it initially was when when the guy died leland died on you know we thought oh that would be cool if it's sort of he's you know if there's sort of the god light or something <laughs> type of effect and then it seemed to be appropriate when they you know when the barn doors opened 
And then I think, well, they, I can't remember now if they were talking about that, but the outdoor one might've been more of a coincidence. We didn't typically do um, a lot of lighting on those outdoor scenes. Just natural, natural light. Yeah. I mean, I always would have backlight. I would always have uh, the camera pointing into towards the, you know, backlight on the actors whenever possible, which mm -hmm. that might, that's probably what created that, uh, sort of flare effect. Oh, okay. I got it. Yeah. So rewatching this episode, uh, Michael, obviously it's a lot of fun to revisit. Uh, did it bring back any memories of, uh, being on set or, uh, I, I think I mentioned something in a, in a, I am or something that this was, I'm pretty sure that this was the episode where there's the, no, you know what? It wasn't, but I'm going to tell okay, it. Anyway. Yeah. I'm just realizing it wasn't <laughs> because this story is what was sort of what, it's what defined my directing experience on the show. Mm -hmm. It wasn't this one, but it was a similar, it was, we were shooting up in Roslyn, which is where the outdoor, you know, that's where the town was. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, Janine was in a huge amount of scenes that day. It was a Monday mm -hmm. and it was, it was in the middle of the winter. So the snow was like up to your calves, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a scene where she was at the plane. I, she had gone, she had a pet, a, a dog and the dog needed an emergency or an emergency hysterectomy. Mm. And now of course in the Seattle area, there's a huge amount of horses and other animals. And so there are vets all over the place, but she insisted that she fly back to Texas and bring her dog to her vet. Mm -hmm. So when she came back on Sunday night, there had been some kind of storm and the plane got in super late. And then because we were in Roslyn, that's, that was like 70 miles away. So her call time was probably, she got picked up. I'm just going to guess around 4 AM. Mm. And I don't think she got back to her apartment until probably 11 PM the night before. So she had a mm. few hours of sleep, but she had a lot of work that day. So we, I get to the set now, coincidentally, this is part of the story. The Friday before, for whatever reason, I had to change rental cars. And I had this little recorder in those days, in case I thought of any ideas, I would record something and, uh, in the car. So I would always leave it in the car. So get to the set and we're setting up a shot. And Janine, Jan we hear from, from uh, the makeup and hair people that Janine is like a basket case. Mm. She's crying. She's, you know, and she can't come to the set when we call for her to come to hers. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go see her. So I, so I go to go to her. She's now in her motor home. So I heading over there. And as I'm heading there, this, I'm sorry, I'm not, she's not headed towards the motor home. This happened in the makeup and hair trailer. trailer. Okay. This is why it okay. became a story. So as I'm going back there, this driver comes running over and says, Oh, Michael, you left this in your rental car that you turned in. And it was the recorder. Cause normally I never had it on me. So, and I swear to God, this is literally true. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating anything that you're about to hear. Right. <laughs> so I go into the makeup and hair and all the makeup and hair women are sort of giving her space and she's in tears. The mascara's coming down, you know, mm -hmm. she's got the marks. And I said, Hey, Janine, you know, and I, I must say, I really, really liked her. Mm -hmm. I really felt she was, you know, 
at heart, a really good person. You know, she had whatever craziness, an actor, but, and also incredibly beautiful and, but, but um, a very good hearted person. So I say, Hey, Janine, what's going on? She says, I can't, I can't work today. I said, yeah, you know, it's, we kind of have to work today. We're here, you know, we're on location. If it was on the stage, we could work something out, but we, we have a lot of pages today and, you know, you're in pretty much everything. So what, is there something I can help with? Or she said, I just I don't feel right to work today. So I said, yeah, I can, I can understand that. It's difficult. You know, you have a lot of, a lot of responsibility. I said, but what is, what's the problem? Anything I can help with? She said, I feel ugly. So now, of course, as soon as I hear this, I know, well, this is going to be easy. <laughs> so I said, I think I may have laughed. I said, ugly, Janine, come on. I mean, you are one of the most beautiful women in the world. I mean, any man could would be like give his right arm to wake up in the morning, turn over and have you be the first thing that he sees. <laughs> and she goes, really? <laughs> so now I know this is going to work. And it's not like I'm doing it as manipulative. I mean, it is on the on the face, but it's all coming from a place of honesty. I mean, yeah. she was one of the most. So so I said, oh, yeah, it's like, in fact, I mean, I think you're, 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 whatever I said, you're an amazing, you know, beautiful woman. And for you to say you're ugly is, I mean, I can understand how you might feel that way, but I mean, come on, look in the mirror. You're a beautiful woman. And she said, you think so? And I said, absolutely. And I guarantee you, I can go outside and pick any hundred guys to come in here. And they would all say yes. Even right now with the mascara running. Mm -hmm. She said, really? I said, yeah. She said, I, I, and I swear this part, you're going to think it's not true. This is true. <laughs> she said, it would be so good if you could somehow record that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think I said something like, you know, Janine Turner is a fine looking woman. <laughs> but she said, it would be so good if you could record that for me. And then whenever I felt like this, I could just play it. <laughs> so... I had this stupid thing. So I said, well, as a matter of fact, I can. So I click record and I said, Janine Turner. Somehow now I'm in a Southern accent. I don't know why, but I said, Janine Turner is a fine looking woman. Turn it off. And she says, can you play that back? <laughs> I said, of course. So I bloop, bloop, bloop. And then it goes, Janine Turner is a fine-looking woman. So That's I hilarious. said, how do you feel? She said, I feel better. Can you play that back again? So she made me do it like two or three more times. And then she said, I'm ready to work. Amazing. Went, Great. <laughs> yeah, okay. And she worked the whole day. And this became like every time I would come back to do a show, the makeup, the makeup and hair people were like, that was like a miracle at Lourdes, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, but I always enjoyed working with her. She was, I thought she was great. And again, yeah. she brought so much, you know, she was great in the part. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess in your role as director, you're guiding the actors to a certain performance, but also like, you know, in, in certain cases, you're, you're, uh, captaining the ship and you got to make right. sure everyone, the actors, the makeup, everyone is like in a good position and you're aware, like you said, it's like, well, we kind of have, 
we're on location today, so we can't really reschedule this and we have so many pages. So you're aware of what has to happen and got to figure out the, uh, right. the, the best way to make everyone comfortable to do it. You know, exactly. It's a great example. Yeah. I actually can see where she's coming from, honestly. Yeah. And I, I know that like we talked about it when we said like actors and, you know, whatever flights of fancy that they might have, because that's what it takes to be an amazing actor. But maybe yeah. like at her moment, like if you think about it, she had just come to bring her dog to an emergency type of procedure and then she right. had to come back. In her mind, she's probably thinking about very ephemeral, very temporary things. And so she's thinking like, what am I doing this for? Is this even going to be immortalized? Am I going to live on? And in her mind, she just wants something to be recorded down so that she can hear about it and then like not have it be whisked away in the air. She wants it to be right there. Right. Her, and that's all she needed. And it's like, I can see where she's coming from. And I think that's actually yeah. very beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I also think <laughs> in a, like kind of a amusing way I, that like that recording almost seems like something that could be like sold on eBay for like a million dollars. Like <laughs> I know. I wish I Well, I gave it to her. I gave yeah, her the, it. you know, the recorder. So yeah. she might still have it somewhere. <laughs> Do you still use a recorder or of some kind whenever you go travel between jobs now? Well, now, you know, you could just do it on your iPhone. On your iPhone. <laughs> I don't nice. need a separate thing. Plus, I don't get that many ideas anymore. I already know all of them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, there was one other thing about. So when I first, the first, um, one of the first shows I ever directed was Jake and the Fat Man before any of you guys were born. Okay. And there was this poker scene in a men, sort of a hunting lodge. And, and I wanted to do this 360 shot around the poker table. And. You know, I was brand new at direct. I think I've been doing it for maybe two years at the most. And so I said, you know, we set up the shot and I had the writers write the scene so that the dialogue worked for a 360. So and they were all excited about it. So I go in now and I'm all excited and and I set up the, the actors the way they need to be. And I tell the cameraman, OK, I'm gonna, I want to do a 360 around the table. So he says to me, oh, that's going to take two hours to light. So that, of course, in TV, in a film, no problem. But in a TV, that's not good. I mean, you know, if it's more than a half hour to light something, that's a big, bad thing. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, um, uh, oh well, well, what can we do? I mean, I kind of planned the whole scene around this 360. And so he says, oh, you can do this and this and this will be just as good. So I, you know, so we did it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just as good. And I learned the lesson that day that if I had just said, okay, and he actually took two hours to light it, he would have been fired. Yes. I wouldn't have been. He would have. And he, there's no way. He was just not wanting to do it for whatever ego. Who knows why? Yeah. So anyway, but in this this show, they had a poker scene in, in the lodge. Yeah. And I got to do, I got to do my mm -hmm. 360. Mm -hmm. I finally got to do it. That is such a great scene too. And, and ten years um, later, or fifteen years later, finally got to do my three sixty <laughs> poker scene, and that was a good scene. It plays out great, yeah. Just the visual of the three sixty, but again, as you're saying, if it's like the way that each of the actors are sort of filling in all the spaces, and it just gives right. a, a perfect flow with the visual and the auditory, like you hear the dialogue, ping ponging, and that's yeah. when we first see Phil and Hauling. Uh, reciting poetry and smiling. Exactly. Hayden and Maurice are like, what are these guys doing? <laughs> like exactly. smoke, smoking their cigars. I was telling this to Lee, but I thought it was really interesting that everybody except Phil is drinking whiskey 
uh, you know, standard drink that you would have. And Phil is the only one drinking a Bloody Mary. Oh, wow. Just on the table. He's got a Bloody Mary. And I was thinking, I was like, I wonder if Props, like, purposely did that or, like, was Phil it, requested it. Paul's it? request? Yeah, I don't know. Right, right. I would say it was probably his request. Because <laughs> I'm sure the prop guy would have just had whiskey for everyone. I didn't even notice that. That's so cool. Yeah, it's such a strange detail, but I was like, I guess that's like a that's in character of Phil, the doctor. Yeah. You talked a little bit, Michael, about the boat, liking the whenever they're working on the boat. I'm guessing that was probably like a construction from the the production designer or Yep. Yeah, we had we constructed that boat. It wasn't obviously it wouldn't have sailed. It's just the just <laughs> like the, the frame of it or something. Right. There's a cool shot. We actually talked about it. Uh, earlier in the podcast, so Charles and I were talking about this episode where it opens up. I think it's a scene when um, Phil and Holling are eating sandwiches and then later the townsfolk rush in with Leland's body. But it opens up almost like a crane-like shot where we see from higher above. So you get to see the full frame of the boat and then the right. camera camera comes down and Charles was like, Charles, you remarked that you really like that. It's very subtle, very kind of a slow movement. And if you don't pay attention, you may not even notice. But Charles, you're asking like, why might you do something like that? I just thought it was great because you could see the whole lay of the boat in the beginning. Right. And then you settle into the two shot where it's more of, you can still sort of see the boat, but it's kind of obscured in the background. So having that in the beginning, you see the full uh, the full display of the frame and stuff. Yep. Well, again, it's, I mean, it's a storytelling thing because the boat is what was the initial thing that brought them together. Mm, yeah. But then it's not really about the boat. It's really mm -hmm. about them. Oh, you know? and that's why the camera comes down. Because awesome. you want to exactly. focus on the two characters. Oh, okay. So rather than cut, you know, cutting would be like, okay, that's what we all expect to cut. But when it's always in the shot and then even when we come down, you still see part of it in the shot. So it's like, yeah. but it's not about that. It's about them. I never question uh, very large, very fancy camera movements, but whenever it comes to those very small, subtle things that you, uh, you were doing right there with the camera dolling down, I always question it because I'm thinking, I'm like, why though? Like <laughs> there has to be a conscious decision because that's very active for the camera to have come down like that. There's right. no way that you were on set and you were like, ah, just have it come down. Like, just because right. that. Yeah, just yeah, like <laughs> With a crane, you you know, that's something you have to think about like a week or two in advance because, um, you know, you have to order it. They don't just have that mm -hmm. on the set all the time. Some shows do. Some shows do these days, but not that not back then. Mm -hmm. Back then, if you wanted a crane, you had to ask for it at least a week in advance. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples of things we talked about. Just the very beginning of the episode is uh, Maggie hurriedly like trying to organize her house because her mom and Leland are about to show up. Right. And right in the beginning, we get just great, like it's sort of this kinetic handheld movement of the camera as she rushes around. And it, I, I'm sure that we probably cut into coverage. I can't remember, but it feels like a lot of it can play out in that handheld right. style. And was that something, um, I guess this depends, but did you ever try to, do like oneers or try to get a lot of stuff in a master shot or what was your approach to to that? Yeah, cutting on, in closer on that, on that show, especially back then when oneers were, for the most part, not really done. Mm -hmm. uh, but that show, even the, like I said before, that they didn't really like artsy kind of stuff, but they did like if scenes played in one shot, they liked that. Mm -hmm. So 
you could do that occasionally. Handheld, they weren't that crazy about, but I think in this situation, I felt again, because she was frenetic and moving around and nervous about her mother coming and everything, that's why the handheld kind of helped to visually tell that story as well. Mm -hmm. So they were okay with it. But sometimes, I don't remember if by then I had to get approval, but sometimes you had to have to talk to someone if you want to do something that wasn't in their normal... Um, like guidelines. Very wick. Right. <laughs> do you find that, is it, um, does it save time to shoot in oneers, or I guess it can depend. It depends on what the, the situation yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, sometimes, well, the problem with oneers is if anyone screws up a line, I mean, in a scene like that where there's no lines, then no problem. But if, if you have like two or three people in a scene and one of them screws up a line, then you have to start from the beginning. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or, you know, a dog barks or, you know, whatever. If there's any technical glitch, focus problem, everything has to be perfect mm -hmm. to make a wonder work. And that's where you really run into the problems. Mm -hmm. mm. I wanted to ask on that very same scene is that, uh, Lee, you had said that the shot opens up with Maggie trying to rearrange the flowers on the table. And at the end of the scene, Maggie's mother, Jane, comes and fixes the flowers. And in, in fact, that's how we end the shot is her fixing the flowers for a couple seconds. And then we fade to black, go to the title screen right there. I was wondering, and this is such a deep cut, so I, don't, I have no idea if you would remember this, but was that in the script or was that your decision, um, Mr. Lang, to say like, I want it to be a circular thing. I, I want it to end where it begins with Jane coming in and fixing the flowers. Well, actually, as you were asking the question, as you were asking the question, I was thinking, okay, he's going to ask if that was my, so my first gut reaction was it must have been in the script. However, I think I'm going to probably end up taking credit because it wouldn't have been in the script to start on the flowers. They would never right. write. Right. So it feels like sort of a Michael Lange or let's say directory mm -hmm. kind of thing to, yeah. you know, bookend a scene that has a significance like that. You know, she's fidgeting and then her mother does a mother thing and, fixes the flowers that she already fixed. <laughs> right. Yeah. For instance, like it probably in the script, it may say like Maggie rushes around her apartment, cleans things. It probably would not say, unless maybe back in the day they used to do this, but it probably would not say close up on a flower vase or something. No, That's like wouldn't. a Michael Lang choice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why they shell out the big box for you. Let's get that, <laughs> get that shot right there. <laughs> exactly right. Well, I think just I want uh, Deborah Mooney, who played, you know, Janine's mom was just amazing to work with. And I had mm. completely forgotten about that. So that was nice to see. Nice. Again. And then there were two lines that Walt had that I actually wrote down here on my little notes when he said, <laughs> I can't remember the context. I just wrote in my notes that he says dry goods. <laughs> <laughs> it's because, uh, so yeah, Ruth Ann is like off, offering him the job. <laughs> <laughs> and he's thinking and about he, it. Yeah. When, he, when he says there's a fungus among us. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. That killed me. It's oh just, my God. yeah, the more I think about it, it's like, it makes sense that everything would be like, hey, do you want to come work in my store? But if you're looking at it from like an outside view, just imagine the character of Walt working in a grocery right. store is so crazy <laughs> so it's just it's a comedy and it's and it's yeah, it sets he, itself he's up. a trapper right he was yeah. he was a trapper yeah, yeah. living out in the woods and being on his being by himself and then also but he knew i looked there was a scene where he explains the workings of of uh merchant you know um, yeah. selling and 
putting up the display and everything, that whole sequence when he wants to put the display up and she yeah. hated it. And he's, he's explaining almost like he had an MBA or something. Right. I'm thinking, How did he get that? And, you know, that's like a mysterious part of his character is he is a tr- fur trapper. And then like after, you, so he's, I think he's introduced in like the fifth season at some point, maybe the fourth, but after a couple episodes, it's revealed that he has a history on Wall Street somehow. Like right. he comes from <laughs> Wall Street as well. Right. Yeah. He has a line in this episode where he says he got fired by uh, Carol Lynch. I-, I forgot the first name of it, but like from Merrill the Lynch or fame- whatever. Yeah, Lynch, yeah, the famous banking company. Like he talks about that. So it's never explained to us. And I imagine it's never going to be of like, right. how, how what, where are you, why are you here? Like what is going on? Well, you can almost see that. And, you know, like someone who gets burned out in a, in an industry, like the financial industry, if they get burned out and they think, I think I'm going to just go be a hunter and a trapper in Alaska, get away from all this yeah. rat race. Well, that's actually really interesting now that you bring that up because, like you said, he wants to go and escape to Sicily and then Ruthann offers him a job kind of like back into the game of what he used to play in. He gets back into it, but then he finds out he's like, he's not fit for that world anymore. Right, or at least exactly. he's not fit for that world with Ruthann. So he has to be set out into the wild, like, you know, to be hunting rabbits and such right there. I didn't think about that. It's actually really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why the show is so great because it really, it kind of just makes us think about our own lives and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one of the things is that uh, me and Lee, that's like our log line for this podcast is that we overanalyze everything. Right. But in a lot of ways, I don't think that we are overanalyzing because I no. think that the script, the script is purposeful in his words. It chooses specific imagery and it uses certain words in repetition in order to hammer home an idea into us but it doesn't do it with the subtleties of like a sledgehammer it does it very quietly and you have to watch all three plot lines unfold and be like oh i see i see what's happening here and like how they're threading this throughout the all the episodes and there's no like vo you know somebody just narrating over and saying like and at the end of the day today's episode was about relationships it's always like (laughs) a word there's like some specific thing that's going throughout it and you're realizing you're like oh okay like the the ice cream and it melting that's what it means for the you know fading relationship or something like that yeah no you're right yeah it was a it was a very carefully crafted show on every level so that was good. And actually, did, did I mention on the last one that that Cottage Frunkel Manny was nominated for a DGA award? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you told us. Uh, I it think was the first one. The first, like, for, as like one hour. comedy or something, one hour right. comedy, because it, it had to go in the comedy um, yeah. category. Yep. So, I mean, that, but the show was, I mean, I think it won quite a few, didn't it win quite a few awards? Yeah. Well, it didn't, oh, it's uh, got the Peabody. Oh, that's right. It won a Peabody. Two Peabody's, like uh, Golden Globes, Emmys. I think for three years it was best series or something, best best series at the Emmys. Yes, it it was was a great show. Very, very, you know, critically acclaimed, popular show. And unfortunately now it's kind of, you know, you have to track down some DVDs or Blu-rays if you want to watch it. I know it's not on because because when I went to see, you know, I have them on my computer, but I thought, oh, I'd like to watch the whole series. It's a stream, uh, and but you can't get it anywhere. I guess I could get DVDs. Yeah, they have some like Blu-rays that are. You have to kind of be careful to find the right region because they're like UK Blu-rays, 
There might be some German. There's like Australian. So you just got to make sure it'll play on your oh, okay. Blu-ray player. But Janine Turner has been posting a lot on Twitter about how it's like now it's streaming. I don't know if it's the full series, but it is streaming in Australia, like some oh. Asian territories. And I think recently in Canada on like these, you know, like I'm not sure what the services are, but it's not like Netflix. It's like, you know, Freebie or, you know, one of those like other weird, probably you have to watch it with ads, but it's like starting to stream in other territories. So oh, good. somehow if it ever gets to America, then it'll, that would be, I think that would be great. As of the time of this release, we're very pleased to say that Northern Exposure is available to rent or buy on Amazon Video in the United States. These are digital copies, HD, every episode. And according to fans on Facebook, there is all the original music retained for these episodes. I think I read from one commenter that in at least one case, the music had been replaced, but... I cannot confirm this, and it seems from the majority of comments that all the original music has been retained. Either way, great to hear that this is available online for the first time, it seems, in the United States, and hopefully soon will be available to stream on some platform like Amazon Prime. I think, Charles, you had, Charles, you had pointed out it was like, I don't know if it was streaming, but maybe it was like airing in Japan. Yeah. And we had like this influx of listeners from Japan, and we we're like, what's going on? We found yeah, out that we it started were, airing in Japan. We were checking our data of where, you know, it was popular geographically. And we were just curious. And uh, Japan was like number two for a while, which is very <laughs> odd. So we were looking into it. And I asked a couple people. I was like, hey, did they like start doing reruns over there? And they're like, oh, yeah, it started airing on like this channel over there. Wow. And it, with Northern Exposure, for some strange reason, it, it's definitely an anomaly is that it's very popular internationally i was talking to a couple of people from germany and i was saying like hey did you have northern exposure over there and they're like oh yeah yeah no that was like it was pretty big over here you know, in the mm-hmm. 90s like my mother had watched it and stuff australia was a really big one and uh like we had just mentioned japan they were really into northern exposure mm. uh the uk as well so yeah like as as calm of an influence that it had in america in the 90s it was relatively big in the other countries for some uh odd reason that's cool so (laughs) so viewers of your podcast i mean do they have must be frustrating if they have no way of actually watching the show it's like it's a you know it's mostly the dvd releases which uh i think we maybe have talked about i don't know if if we did or not but apparently after season one or season two because they released i don't think they released it all as one set initially they did like season one first season two on dvd season three after the first or second season, they started replacing the music on the DVDs with like oh, royalty free, wow. like cheaper. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why it has never been on streaming is because they don't want to sh- pay pay the rights. I think it's it's got, I mean, the show had a lot of uh, contemporary music and a lot of just, you know, probably expensive music to license. So right. when it came to home video, they, they probably didn't want to shill out the money and for streaming. Uh, so that, that could be a huge reason why it's difficult right. to, to grab, mm-hmm. but most of the listeners of the show are older. Um, or we do have a lot of younger listeners too, who will find like the DVDs at a thrift store or at the library. A lot of times local oh, libraries yeah. will have the DVD set. 
that's how we start. We started with just the DVD set, and then uh, one of our friends gifted us the Blu-ray. So, well, Michael, thanks again so much for returning. We had such a great time talking to you the first time. I'm so glad that we uh, that we met online and and made that happen, and that you're back to talk about the Mommy's Curse today. That was a lot of fun. Always hilarious. You're you're such a great storyteller too. So always great to hear oh. your stories. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, it's a lot of stories to tell. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You guys, you guys do a great job with this podcast too. And I, I feel like the the reverence for the show is very cool. Thanks. Yeah, no, oh. yeah. Thank you. Wonderful show. Thanks, Michael. Uh, you know, that's that's your last episode for Northern Exposure, but we'd I love know. to have we'd love to have you back some other time on the podcast. We can we can chat again sometime. Let me know. <laughs> love to do it. Thanks, Michael. Okay. Take care, guys. Right. Take care. Okay, Charles, that does it for our episode on The Mommy's Curse. What a great episode. And next week we're going to be talking about season six, episode 15, The Quest. And we've already kind of mentioned this already, Charles. This is the last episode with Rob Morrow. And you haven't watched this episode yet. I actually just rewatched it recently. Really excited to talk about it. But I wanted to get your thoughts before you watch it. What do you think is going to happen? Coming out of this episode, going into the next, we know that this is Rob Morrow. This is Joel Fleischman's last episode. What is it called again? It's called The Quest? The Quest. Huh. Well, with a title like that, I would guess that Joel gets summoned to somewhere else. Like, he has a vision in Menonash. Something tells him that this isn't the last train stop. He's got to go somewhere else. He's got a new place to be. Might not even be New York. Not even completely sold that he's going back to New York. Could just be another location in which his services are needed, and he gets a sent off that way. I think you're not far off the mark. You know, the title is The Quest. I think we expect a quest next episode. Do you have, I mean, of course, there's no way of knowing. Do you have any idea? Like, we joked before. It's like, what if Joel dies? Like, what if they kill Joel? <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. But do you have any ideas of how, what'll happen? I think I want to stay with what I just said, mm -hmm. where it's got to be the trappings of Menonash that gives him the idea that he needs to leave Alaska. I don't think that it's going to be done by an outside force like a character. Like, I don't think it's going to be Maggie or Holling or Maurice or Chris or Ed or any one of the characters that comes and talks to him and says, hey, I think you're needed somewhere else because he's already been with those characters for six seasons. I think it's got to be something new, which is Menonash, that has to speak to him and say, hey, you got to go somewhere else. This is where you're being led to. So, yeah, I I want to guess around that area. I like it. And I'm very excited. We're going to talk about that next week. So, Charles, I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Michael Lang for being our guest. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.